This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. I'm joined today by Dr. Alexander Chang, who is the co-chair for this course. And this week's special guest is Dr. Paul Chen. Um, who will be presenting to us on um, a really, I'm sure, a, a topic that everyone will find very interesting, which is kind of diving into the medical treatment and interventions that are available um, for lower back pain. So before we dive into the lecture, I just want to take this opportunity to introduce Dr. Chen to everybody. Uh, Dr. Chen completed medical school at the University of California in Los Angeles, so do it down in um, SoCal. He did his anesthesia residency actually at the University of Chicago. Um, So, and then after that kind of moved again um, for his pain fellowship at UC Davis. Then he actually went on to practice private practice pain medicine for about three years in the Bay Area and taught as a volunteer clinical faculty at UC Davis. I think that's where he kind of caught the teaching bug because then he transferred to become a full-time faculty at UCSF starting September of 2022. Um, And he really does everything. (laughs) Um, He splits his time between general anesthesiology, obstetrics anesthesiology, um, regional anesthesia and acute pain medicine, as well as um, his history of kind of working in private practice interventional pain management. Um, Outside his clinical work, uh, he focuses on teaching and mentorship for residents and medical students, uh, which is his main academic passion and kind of what brought him back from private practice into academics. Um, And he's also published multiple book chapters and research articles focused on various aspects of both anesthesia and kind of um, relevant to today's talk, pain management. So without further ado, uh, Dr. Chen. Hi, everyone. I'm so excited to be here and uh, so excited to be able to speak to you about something that I'm very passionate about, which is pain management, um, different interventional techniques, and also like different medications we can use to treat chronic pain. I think in general, it's when we think about chronic pain, uh, many, many years in the past, it used to be something very nebulous, very confusing, um, something where it was very hard to think of very concrete methods for treatments. But I think especially nowadays, there's so many different options. And that's why I love giving a talk like this, where we can explore all those different options together and also answer any questions that come up. First disclosures, I don't have any disclosures. We'll be talking about uh, some specific medical devices and also uh, specific medications. And there may be certain brands that are pictured, but it doesn't represent either positive or negative endorsement. Uh, just more kind of evaluating and uh, looking through some of the basics of it. Here are the topics we'll talk about today. So the first is uh, we'll dive through like pain medications in this broad overview. Uh, Then we'll transition to injections for back pain. And then finally, we'll talk about advanced slash surgical procedures uh, that can be done with your interventional pain doctor um, that can help with pain relief. When we conceptualize the treatment for pain management, I like to think of it in this uh, diagram. You know, there's actually many different facets. Today, we're obviously focusing on uh, three of them. Um, interventional, which combines both injections that we do, but also the surgical procedures, which we'll go through, um, and pharmacologic, meaning medications that we give for pain management. 
Uh, but just know that this is in a bigger context. Pain management is something that's very, very complex. And I think that's part of why it's very fascinating as a topic to explore in medicine. Uh, there's many different layers, and there's something called the biopsychosocial model, which is pictured here in this little bubble, uh, meaning that there's all different aspects. There's the biologic basis for pain, there's a psychological overlay, and then very closely tied to that is the social context. Um, somebody who you know is more isolated um, and having symptoms of depression and anxiety is going to have a very different pain experience than somebody who is just getting surgery and otherwise doesn't have any other um, medical or psychological issues going on in their life. Uh, one big component we won't be talking about, um, but is important to mention is physical rehabilitation. So that's another big cornerstone of treatment. And then another topic, which again, we won't really cover in this lecture per se, but is also very common um, and very oftentimes used method for treatment these days is complementary and integrative medicine. All right, so the first topic, non-opioid medications. When we think about medications used for pain relief, um, there's actually this buzzword called multimodal therapy. So in essence, what it means is that we use multiple different methods to treat pain. And when we're specifically talking about medication, we want to use multiple different methods and different pain receptors um, that are unique, that can attack pain from multiple different angles. Um, we will talk a little bit about opioids later, which is like the stereotypical thing we think of as like pain medication. Things like morphine and related uh, compounds like Norco, Percocet, stuff like that, which still do have a place in pain management, but it's a little bit more narrow. Uh, but instead of just focusing on that, which is what was done, you know, many, many, many years ago, we've come to find that there's multiple other different agents that can be used and especially well in combination. You know, if you're using multiple different agents, you're going to get a lot better pain control than just focusing on one agent in and of itself. Um, the big common ones that we can get over the counter, which we'll talk about a little, are Tylenol or acetaminophen, uh, also non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. These are super important because almost every single pain patient in some way or another has been on these medications, whether it's just taking them over the counter or part of a prescribed medication regimen. Uh, then we'll talk about neuropathic agents. So that would be things like gabapentin, Lyrica, and other related agents. And then there's also ketamine, uh, which is has its own unique pathway for pain treatment. All right. So the first thing we think of when we go to the store, we're having some sort of new pain or even some pain that's been there for a long time. The first thing we all gravitate towards is Tylenol. So Tylenol is very unique in that, you know, we actually don't know exactly how the medicine works. You know, we, when we talk about medication, we'll talk about the mechanism through which each of these medicines causes its effect. But it's interesting to know that one super common drug, this Tylenol that we all use, we still don't really know exactly how it causes pain relief. A lot of people in the past thought it had to do something with anti-inflammatory effect, which is actually more relegated to the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, which we'll talk about next. But with Tylenol, some thought has been, especially with recent research, it may be actually related more to like cannabinoid receptors, which are the receptors for like marijuana-related um, compounds. But super common to be used and also quite effective, though oftentimes used in combination. An important point to note is that a lot of opioid combination medications like the Norco, the Percocet that we mentioned earlier, and we'll discuss a little bit more later, is Tylenol combined with the opioids. 
Next, we have non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medications. So these specifically work in a pathway where they block an enzyme called cyclooxygenase or COX um, to abbreviate. But essentially it blocks one enzyme step uh, in this pathway that causes inflammation and thereby interrupts the inflammatory cascade, as we call it. Each of them are slightly different in terms of um, the effect on that COX enzyme. Some of them affect uh, one specific subtype of it more than the other. Um, in general, there's actually two big subtypes that we think about. So it would be cyclooxygenase type 1 and cyclooxygenase type 2. So type 2 is really the one that's involved in inflammation causing that inflammatory-related pain. And a lot of the medications that are available over the counter, and even oftentimes the prescribed medications like meloxicam and then ibuprofen uh, are blocking both of those two different um, enzymes, the COX-2, which is more the pain pathway, and then the COX-1. The COX-1 is more related to some of the side effects we see from anti-inflammatories. So when we think about the common side effects, it would be things like GI upset, um, and then related to that, like GI bleeding, and then also some um, decrease in terms of clotting ability. There are some medications, though, that are very specific for that COX-2 enzyme, which is more the pain inflammation pathway. And one example that's actually pretty commonly used is Celebrex or Celecoxib. But yeah, the concept is pretty straightforward. You know, they decrease inflammation as inflammation is one of the big components of how pain is generated. Next, we think about neuropathic medications. So this is more when you have a nerve-generated type of pain. One common one that is involved in oftentimes many cases of back pain is like a pinched nerve. So a lot of people call it like sciatica, um, but it's essentially neuropathic pain when you have a pinched nerve in the back and it usually shoots down the leg along a specific nerve pattern. So these medications can actually block specific receptors. In the case of um, gabapentin and Lyrica, you're blocking a calcium channel receptor. And the thought is you can block some of these pain signals or just the signaling of the nerve itself and thereby block some of this neuropathic pain. Um, these medications, though, gabapentin and Lyrica, which are somewhat like cousin drugs of one another, are drugs that you have to take for a pretty long time, usually on the order of like three to four weeks before you get to a very steady state, a steady amount in the bloodstream to get to its effect. So they're going to be very different from like Tylenol and ibuprofen, uh, which are more like instantaneous felt relief. These, I always counsel my patients that you have to take them for a while before you notice anything. And it may be more gradual, uh, but when you get to that steady state level, if for some reason you like miss a dose or two, then you'll start to feel some of the effects when you're not on it. So you notice that big difference. Additionally, in this category are antidepressant-related medications. So usually what we call them are selective norepinephrine um, or serotonin and norepinephrine re reuptake inhibitors. And basically what that means is that they block the reuptake of some of these neurotransmitters uh, and thereby actually help to decrease some of the pain signals by sending a signal down from the brain that basically inhibits the pain. So it reduces actively the pain signals coming up the spinal cord into the brain. But as I mentioned before, a lot of them are actually antidepressant medications. So they actually have very similar side effects to other antidepressants. So they can make you a little bit more alert. Uh, obviously, there can be mood changes, whether that's 
good if you're also suffering from depression or anxiety, or whether that's bad, it makes you feel a little bit kind of weird when you first start taking it. Uh, secondly, they also take quite a while to get to their maximum effect. So I usually tell patients like three to four weeks as well with those types of medication. One question related to this, um, there are other antidepressants which specifically uh, increase serotonin. So as I mentioned, Cymbalta uh, increases both serotonin and norepinephrine, uh, but the ones that only increase serotonin really don't help as much with the pain pathway because it's that neurotransmitter norepinephrine, which is the one that's really key for helping with pain reduction. Alrighty, we can't talk about pain these days and not talk about medical cannabis or essentially marijuana-related compounds because I think it's very common these days. And then, you know, many patients that I've seen previously in clinic, um, you know, always ask this question. They ask, like, what do you think about CBD and then its effect in terms of the pain pathway? Um, so a little bit of background, marijuana has two main active components. One would be THC, tetrahydrocannabinol and then one is CBD or cannabidiol. So THC is one where we typically associate it with more of the euphoric effects of marijuana, getting you high, um, stuff like that, where CBD is thought to be more the one that could potentially decrease pain. There's actually quite a bit of research going on right now, as I'm, as I'm sure you can imagine, in general, like relatively safe compound, um, not technically a prescribed drug, except in very small Applications not really related to pain. So it's more like considered a supplement that's not super regulated. But I would say a lot of the research is quite promising. You know, there seems to be some data that does support this, but it's a little bit too early to make a definitive statement on whether or not it helps. I oftentimes tell my patients, like, if it's something that is safe, you've tried it, hasn't had a lot of side effects for you, um, just see if it'll help reduce some of your pain. I think in the next couple of years, we'll probably know quite a lot more about uh, cannabinoids and uh, what the specific steps are in terms of how they reduce pain. Uh, next, we talk about opioid medications. So another big um, topic in general, especially in the news recently, you know, opioids are the main medications we hear about when we think about like dangerous medications to be on for pain relief. And, you know, we all heard of in the news where people would overdose either intentionally or unintentionally, and then have respiratory depression, meaning they can't really breathe, um, and then they essentially die as a result of that. But overall with opioids, um, though the guidance has shifted back and forth, the most recent guidance from the CDC, which we'll go into in the next couple of slides, is that it does have a place. You know, most people in the medical community recognize opioid medications as being quite useful uh, especially for acute pain after surgery, for example, or also with cancer-related pain. I think those are not really disputed right now. Um, the more recent guidance is that if you have chronic pain where it's not really responding to other things, you know, the other different modalities of treatment in terms of medications that we talked about, or what we'll talk about later, which are some of the injections and different types of procedures, um, it is reasonable to consider opioids in those very narrow circumstances, uh, but the CDC guidance we'll talk about later does offer some, um, like some rules of engagement in that way, like how much you should prescribe and then what you should be thinking about when you prescribe. But I think it's important to know just some of the basics because this will come up quite frequently. So with opioids, 
they act on three different receptors um, in the body, and they're both in the spinal cord and in the brain. Uh, the main effect is that it binds to the receptor and then decreases the pain uh, signaling. Uh, but it can cause some side effects. So it can cause things like constipation, respiratory depression, meaning you're not having that drive to breathe that you normally have. Um, and then that can lead to a lot of other issues, you know, essentially being found down or, you know, having needing to be ha uh, resuscitated, things like that. Uh, it can also cause a lot of nausea, vomiting. I think that's probably one of the most common complaints from patients that are on the medication. In general, we split them into both short-acting and then long-acting opioids. So starting at the top of the screen here, the short-acting opioids are the common ones that are prescribed for a lot of patients. Uh, and the most typical scenario is, for example, you get like surgery on your knee. And then just for the recovery period, you get a couple of weeks worth of a short-acting opioid medication. Uh, so things like this would be like Norco, Lortab, Vicodin. Um, and then what it is, is actually acetaminophen and then hydrocodone, which is one of the opioids that we talked about. Opioids, just to know, is they actually do have a similar, uh, like, latter part of the name. So that's how you be able to recognize, just from the name alone, that it's an opioid medication. It's a C-O-D-O-N-E uh, latter part for a lot of them, though there's some that don't follow that pattern, like morphine, fentanyl, stuff like that. With oxycodone-based, you have things like Percocet and Roxycodone. And then morphine, which is becoming less and less common because some people will actually have a rash reaction to it. Um, these would be things like Roxanol. Uh, fentanyl is a short-acting medication, but it's usually in IV form uh, when it's in the short-acting uh, component. So that's usually given uh, in the operating room or in the hospital somehow. And then hydromorphone is like dilated, uh, which is also mainly in an IV formulation. When you hear about like street drugs, uh, oftentimes nowadays you'll hear like fentanyl being mixed in. Uh, it doesn't mean that it's a bad medication. We actually use it quite frequently in the hospital because it's very fast acting and it can be very strong in a good way, you know, addressing like really severe pain. Uh, but it's more when it's like mixed in ways where, you know, people don't anticipate that it's quite strong uh, and a, quite a powerful medication. Uh, there are long-acting opioids. So usually they give us a clue in their name. So when it says ER after it, it means extended release. So oxycodone extended release would be oxycontin. And then in a similar naming fashion, morphine extended release would be MS-contin. Uh, another name for it is Cadian. Uh, fentanyl is unique in that when we take this mainly IV medication, we repackage it into a patch and we place it on. And it's usually in the setting of like people with really long-standing pain related to cancer. That patch, just because of how it's constructed, um, allows there to be storage of the medication in the patch itself. And then it slowly seeps into the different layers of the skin, eventually reaching the bloodstream. So that's what changes it from a short-acting IV version into a long-acting patch version. Uh, another way to make it more long-acting is actually to have a fentanyl lollipop, which is actually pretty common for our cancer patients. In a similar fashion, the drug is stored in that lollipop, and then by you essentially eating the lollipop slowly, then you're slowly getting bits of the drug into your bloodstream. 
Methadone is one that's actually commonly used for like drug detoxing, but as an opioid pain fighting medication, it can also be very useful because it does have that pretty long lasting several hour duration. And then buprenorphine uh, is a new one that is actually very common these days because it's a little bit safer actually in comparison to some of the other opioids. It has um, a way to make it so that you don't have as much respiratory depression that you're not knocking out that drive to breathe as much in comparison to some of the other medications. And it's quite useful because it's in many different forms. So you can actually be in a patch that you put um, underneath the, or in the cheek or a pill that you put like underneath the tongue. So there are different ways to have a more slow release of the medication into the body. When we talk about opioids, one of the basic things that we think about from the medical standpoint is uh, this term called oral morphine equivalence. So all the opioids can actually be exchanged, kind of like different currencies from different countries. You can actually exchange, for example, like 30 milligrams of morphine into whatever the equal dosage amount for any of the other opioids. Um, so the way we do that is we actually convert everything to the base currency, which is morphine itself. And then use tables like this, where essentially they give us ratios. And then we take that and then convert it to whichever medication we want in that ratio. Uh, some of these tables, though, will have blanks. And then this is because, you know, it's not going to be an oral form, which is what per os means. Fentanyl is going to be mainly in the intravenous form. So within the same table, though, you can convert whatever amount of morphine you're on or whatever amount of any medication, I should say, into the oral morphine equivalents, and then use this table to convert it to the other drug, whether it's like going straight down, converting to a different oral drug, or actually going across the table and converting it to the intravenous form. As we mentioned, though, opioids do have their side effects, which is the main reason why it's not usually like the first thing that we go for. Um, just to go through some of this table, so nausea, vomiting, uh, you have pyridus, which is like itchiness, uh, you have sedation, so that in combination with that respiratory depression, which is down here, is quite a dangerous scenario. If you take a lot of opioids, you can get myoclonus, which is basically a fancy way to say like twitching that's somewhat uncontrolled. Uh, you can also get delirious, where your thinking gets a little strange, um, you're uh, level of consciousness gets altered because of it. Constipation is a big one. So uh, for anyone that's actually being prescribed opioids, you should usually get a stool softener prescribed as well. And then uh, long-term side effects, there can be effects in terms of your hormones. Uh, so it can mess with the levels of testosterone and estrogen in the bloodstream. A lot of people have been like writing about naloxone in the lay press and essentially what that is, is a reversal medication. So if somebody has taken a lot of opioids, like too much more than the body can handle at that moment, they'll start to get this respiratory depression and then they'll get this sedation. So usually this scenario, they'll be like found down or just very sedated, or maybe like looking even blue in the face when they're not breathing enough. Um, naloxone is a way for you to, it's usually like in a nasal spray or an injectable um application where a bystander can actually give the person who's uh, overdosed on the medication this rescue medication so it kind of saves their life in that process. Naloxone is also something that like EMTs or other emergency rescue workers will have on hand to administer to patients as needed.
But opioids, you know, suffice it to say, are kind of fraught with a lot of debate. Uh, one of the big things is that it does cause a lot of death. And a lot of this is actually related to both like the prescribing practices before there was more like guidance. You know, in the past, it would be like each doctor would try to find their own way to prescribe it. And there wasn't a lot of oversight either. So as you can imagine, in a lot of situations, it may be okay if your doctor's normally like regulating how much you're getting and very careful about that. But even in the most careful hands, sometimes um, the patients may not take it at the exact prescribed dosage or, you know, take some and then also take other medications, which can combine and cause more of those sedating and respiratory depression effects. So this shows essentially um, the California uh, status in terms of opioid deaths. So the more red that it looks, the more like uh, the more percentage of uh, opioid deaths there were. And this dates back to 2015, 2016. And then this map on the right here is actually of the entire US. So there's certainly hot spots, and it tends to be like less of the metropolitan type areas, uh, more often concentrated in like the underserved, more rural type areas. But it's interesting, I think. The tide does shift quite a bit. You know, recently there was a lot stricter guidance, which recently got changed actually in 2022. Uh, but suffice it to say, if we take a bigger kind of broader perspective, even over the past two decades or so, uh, there's been increase overall in terms of opioid overdose deaths. Uh, and then this chart demonstrates it pretty well. If we look at the green bar, it's talking about any opioid death. And starting from 1999 going to 2017, you see it going up in terms of the death per 100,000 people. Uh, but the different types of opioids that are causing most of this effect actually change over time. And most interestingly, in the past decade or so, um, it has changed quite a bit. So it used to be more like... Um, commonly prescribed opioids. And then there was this uptick in heroin, so like street uh, opioids. And then now it's other synthetic opioids. So the fentanyl issues that you see a lot in the news nowadays didn't used to be a big thing before 2014 or so, but it seems has seen this meteoric rise recently. So all that to say, you know, that's why a lot of doctors are very concerned about opioids. It's not that we want to you know, restrict patients from getting them per se, but it's more these specific defined situations where they're carefully prescribed, carefully monitored are the ones where it is appropriate as a medical treatment. In terms of the guidelines, they were actually recently updated. Uh, there are actually many, many, many pages, but I'll try to, you know, highlight the salient points. Uh, first of all, we talked about how there's key scenarios where it seems more acceptable. So acute pain after surgery, cancer-related pain, in situations where you've already dis, uh, prescribed other medications that are non-opioids, but it's not really helping to relieve the pain. You've already done other treatments like the injections. Um, but the overall goal of this, uh, the overall summary is prescribe uh, short-acting opioids, uh, carefully monitor, prescribe rescue medications like Narcan, which is naloxone, um, and then do the lowest dose as possible to reach the effect. Um, and then there's other things it talks about, including like urine, tox screening, and other safety measures that go into prescribing opioids. Uh, the last thing is like a continual reassessment. You don't want to put patients on opioids and have them take it, you know, continuously without any reevaluation. 
Because it shouldn't be a medicine that you're on necessarily forever unless you're in a very specific circumstance. Uh, it can be something that you are on temporarily and then you replace it with other things that can last a little bit longer, have less of like a harm side effect profile. Alrighty. So the second half uh, of this talk is more about injections and then we'll talk about surgical procedures. When we think about injections, today's lecture will focus on mainly back pain, but a lot of these principles apply to other types of pain as well. Like if you have a nerve entrapment in the arm or leg that's not originating in the back, um, some of these techniques can be also applied in that scenario. But when we start to think about back treatment, we have to first differentiate, like what type of pain is this? The first common type is when you have just a sore back and stuff like the pain symptoms stay in the back itself. It doesn't really move down the legs and it doesn't feel like weird numbness tingling. Um, that would be more like musculoskeletal pain or an arthritis type of pain. But sometimes you'll have a pinched nerve, which is something demonstrated in this picture where the, the disc in between the vertebrae will actually move backwards or sometimes even the internal parts of the disc will actually rupture out and then touch upon some of the nerve roots and you'll get this, what we call radicular pain. Uh, radicular is basically like the Latin way to say like nerve related. And you'll get that shooting, tingling, sometimes burning, numbing pain that goes down the leg. Uh, for this, we actually have a very common injection called a lumbar epidural steroid injection. Uh, and this pain, just to reiterate, goes along a nerve pattern. So this is what we call the dermatome. And this basically describes, based on these nerve roots, like the big trunk or the big branches, I should say, uh, of nerves that come off the trunk, which is the spinal cord itself, like where does it go down the body? So when we're thinking about back pain, we're thinking about the lumbar region, which is this L region. And you can see that it starts in the back itself and it goes down various aspects of the thigh and then the lower leg. And then later on down, we think about the sacral region, which is here in S and corresponds to like this part that's kind of near the tailbone, which I still lump into back pain, but this goes down kind of the buttock region and the back of the leg. So when you get this, one option for treatment is an injection that's guided by x-ray where we go in, place a needle in between the bones of the back, and then get to this space outside the wrappings of the spinal cord and spinal roots called the epidural space. That name may sound very familiar because when we think about epidurals, we think about like pregnant patients and getting an epidural catheter. Uh, it's actually named because whether it's an injection uh, for pain relief or a catheter for numbing medicine, it's actually going in the same area, this epidural space outside the wrappings of the spinal cord and spinal roots. And we access that area because it's a good area where we can safely put medication and it's very close to the nerve, close to where it's going to take its end effect. Um, this is just an example illustration of what happens. We go in with a needle and then this one is more demonstrating that catheter for when patients are pregnant. And this catheter just gives us a route to give numbing medicine and that makes you numb uh, from the waist down usually. But related to that is just this single injection where we usually put steroid medications, which are strong anti-inflammatory. And when we put it here, it, it goes and wraps around the nerves and we target it right next to the nerve root uh, or right near the nerve root that we think is involved that's being pinched off. Uh, one variation on this is called the transforaminal epidural steroid injection. 
So just to orient you for this picture, these are the vertebrae, the bones of the back. When you see it's a little bit more like white colored or like light gray colored, that's going to be the spaces in between the bones. Uh, and then here, what you're not seeing, so these are what we call the transverse process, the side parts of the vertebrae, and then tucked underneath is going to be the nerve. So here you're seeing that instead of going right in the middle and reaching the epidural space in the center, where the medication that you inject would kind of flow on either side, similar to the pattern of a Christmas tree, we can specifically target an individual nerve and deposit a, a larger amount of medication right next to the nerve by doing it through this other method where we go along the side and then there's like a nerve root hole uh, where the nerve exits and we can just deposit all of that steroid right there. This demonstrates that same uh, injection that we talked about, but just from a side view. So this screen thing is the needle itself. And then we're seeing the vertebrae, which are the bones at the back. This is that disc. And then you can imagine this disc, if it pinches backwards, it will pinch right up against this nerve. So what we're doing is we're safely going in under x-ray guidance and then putting the needle tip right there so that we can safely inject right along that nerve. So it deposits all that steroid there, reduces inflammation because that inflammation along the nerve is what's causing a lot of those nerve shooting type of pain that originates from the back. Uh, related to this um, is something called the lumbar selective nerve root block. So sometimes um, when the pain progresses and you come to a situation where you see a spine surgeon and they're like, yeah, we want to do spine surgery for you. We think you'll do well, but we want to really pinpoint which nerves are affected. So they'll sometimes confer with us, the interventional pain doctors, and then we can do a nerve block where using that same technique of that transforaminal epidural, we actually place the needle right next to the nerve root. And then instead of putting steroids, that anti-inflammatory uh, medication, we'll put a little bit of numbing medicine. So if we numb up your nerve and then all of the pain resolves, then that helps us to really focally target that one area as being the main generator of pain. And thereby it helps surgeons to kind of narrow down, not do an extensive, huge back surgery, but really focus on that one area. Like for example, the left L5, one nerve, where you can just go in there and remove some of the tissue, free it up so it's not pinched off and inflamed, and thereby get a lot more results in terms of pain relief with the more minor surgery. The other big category of back pain uh, that we talked about would be arthritis. So that'd be pain that usually stays more in like the central area of the back. Sometimes it goes to the leg, but it usually feels very different than the nerve pinching type of pain. It's not going to be that electricity shooting burning pain that goes down the leg, but it's more going to be like a dull aching pain. Uh, similar to if you've had arthritis of the knee or hip, uh, the more you move it, the more pain you do develop. Um, and this is what it looks like in kind of illustrated cartoon form. Uh, this is called the facet joint, basically the joints which are on either side uh, of the back. And then they, in healthy uh, versions, would look like this. You know, you have the joint capsule, which is basically this part is bone and then covering it is some cartilage. And then this is all cartilage too. It kind of encapsulates it in a pod. And there's some fluid inside that lubricates it, allows it to move around and not cause too much issue with inflammation or pain. But with time and usually with age and sometimes made worse by like car accidents or other types of falls, um, you can get irritation of this joint. Similar to like when athletes get like 
accelerated knee arthritis. The more you use that joint, the more likely you'll get inflammation. It won't look like this nice pristine joint, but it'll start looking a little bit more like this. But we have options. So there's something called the medial branch, which is basically a little branch uh, coming off the big nerve root, which is this thing. Uh, but it's pictured here. Uh, and then one little part here is highlighted in red. But essentially what happens is that one little part of this nerve goes up into this facet joint above it and it causes sensation there. And then one little part goes to the joint below it. So over time, what we've discovered is if we actually go in there and block this nerve, put numbing medicine here, if you get good pain relief, we can actually then later burn off that nerve because it just provides sensation. It doesn't really cause any like motor or strength effects, but it's more just sensing those joints. But if you're only sensing pain as the majority um, sensation, if you burn it off, then that pain can disappear. Um, so this is just an illustration of what we call a medial branch block, where we put a lot of needles here, put numbing medicine there as a test. And then the second part of that procedure is called a radiofrequency ablation, which will be illustrated in the next slide. Um, this left picture here just shows more of like that referral pattern because sometimes you will feel it in the back itself, but sometimes you'll feel it lower down, like in the back of the thigh. And that's actually very normal, but we kind of differentiate it from the nerve specific inflammation pain because it's not going to be that burning, shooting, tingling, but again, more of that aching kind of dull, constant pain. This is an illustration of that medial branch um, block where we put this needle right here. It's in that previous slide um, where we saw that there was like a red demarcation. That's where we actually go and put the needle tip right there so we can block it first and then later come in with a specialized needle and then do an ablation, which is illustrated here. So an ablation is basically a fancy way to say that we heat the tip of the needle really, really hot. So it's usually around like you know 80, 90 degrees. And then that will like burn tissue, but in a very specific pattern. So we're not burning like really critical other structures, um, but we do a test and make sure we're not near any like other big, huge nerves that we don't want to burn. Uh, we're just focusing on this small sensory nerve. And then once we're there, we just do a controlled burn, which is illustrated by this kind of like sun pattern. So small enough, so it's not super dangerous but uh, targeted very well. So it very effectively gets to that nerve. Uh, this is the needle itself, by the way. And then this uh, like black and white, or sorry, black and blue thing is actually gonna be a, a little filament that we put in the center of the needle. One similar procedure that addresses uh, this facet arthritis type of pain, but it's not like a nerve burning procedure because some patients don't prefer that. Uh, they prefer maybe just like a single injection. They don't want like a two-step situation. Uh, we can go in with a very small needle and then actually get into this tiny joint, which is really hard to see on the left side here. But if you can imagine the needle, you're just staring down the barrel towards the tip. You kind of see it in somewhat like a bullseye pattern. And then this little sliver of white in between the gray masses is that little joint. Uh, so just a little easier to see here with this green needle and then into the joint right here. So we can go in there, put a small amount of steroids and then also some numbing medicine to directly reduce some of the pain. 
And it's a very similar concept to when people do like a knee injection for pain. You're putting steroids there in a very inflamed area so that the strong anti-inflammatory can reduce that inflammation. Uh, we talked earlier about the sacral roots. So basically you have the lumbar area, which is like the main part of what we think as the low back. But as you travel down your back towards like the tailbone, which is called the coccyx in medical terms, you reach this big plate-like structure called the sacrum. And then the sacrum uh, also has those nerve roots. And previously, when we looked at that dermatome, um, these nerve roots are the ones that were in red that go down the buttock and then down the back of the thigh, back of the leg. So in a very similar fashion, just like uh, higher up, we can address uh, nerve shooting type of pain by doing uh, injections in this area. Uh, one option is called a caudal epidural serinjection. Uh, what that means is that we actually put a needle through here, which is the entrance of the sacrum area. And then that way it can actually spread to all of these sacral nerve roots by just doing one injection. And just as before, this is the dermatome. And then we're talking about this red area. So let's say you come in and you're like, doctor, I have uh, this weird burning numbing pain going down my buttock. It's very weird. It goes down the back of my thigh and then to my calf. Then we think, oh, you might have an S2, like nerve pinching problem. And then we go in here and it's an easy way to access like the deeper structures right around the nerve in the epidural space, and then spread some of that steroid medication right here. Uh, what you don't see pictured are, you know, the nerves, and then they live in this area and they branch out like a Christmas tree, just like above. Uh, this is just the x-ray picture of that caudal epidural serinjection. This is the needle. This is just like a sideways view of the sacrum and then the coccyx, the tailbone. So we're getting into that little space. It's called the sacral hiatus here. And then pictured right here, the needle's going through the sacral hiatus. And then that way you're easily able to access that deeper epidural space, that space around the wrappings of the spinal cord, spinal roots. Uh, and then you can deposit medication safely there. This is what it looks like in terms of like uh, front and back orientation. It's better to orient yourself with this cartoon. So these are now the pictured nerve roots. So they kind of always look like a, this wiry Christmas tree. Uh, we're entering here at a safe space that's around the nerves itself. And then you can deposit medication. This is when we put contrast. So contrast helps us to highlight in black um, different areas where we're injecting uh, when we're using x-ray as a guidance mechanism. So you can see that it actually traces out this kind of wiry Christmas tree pattern. It's very fascinating. Related to the transforaminal epidural steroid injection in the lumbar spine, which is the which is like the higher area of the low back, we can do that same type of technique where we target individual nerves. Now these are sacral nerves by putting a needle through these what we call sacral foramina. So basically like the little hole in the bone. And we can go there carefully and then place this needle right next to the nerve, but not touching the nerve, and then deposit some steroids there. Uh, this is just like a sideways view looking at that. We just get park the needle right next to the nerve and then put some steroids there. Um, there's some other kind of miscellaneous type of injections that we can do in the low back that can help some more specific types of pain. There's something called the ganglion impar block, and this is more if you have like coccidinia, which is basically like when your tailbone hurts a lot and it's all concentrated along there. 
You can actually inject here, which is called the ganglion impart. It's like a cluster of nerves and then relieve some of that pain. This can also help with like very low, like pelvic or perineal pain. Perineal is like the area around the genitals. So if you have like a, a very specified focal genital pain, this can help with some of that pain by just putting steroids around this nerve cluster. And it looks like this under x-ray imaging. This, it's, it's actually positioned in between the bones. So we actually go in between the bones through some cartilage. And then it's right before you get near like the rectum. So we don't want to put the needle too far, but straight, just right here, just after you bypass the bones. Um, another source of what we call axial type pain, which is pain that stays right in the center of the back, uh, but is lower down, like low, almost to the point where you reach like the hip area. Uh, there's something called the sacroiliac joint, which is between the sacrum, which is that plate bone, and then one part of the pelvis. So it's this that's outlined in red. It can get inflamed just like any joint in your body. So in a similar fashion to when we thought about the joints of the back, those facet little joints, just think of this as like one huge facet joint uh, in the lowest part of the back. And we can actually go in with a needle and then actually put steroids directly into this joint. It's called the sacroiliac joint injection. So here, when we see the sliver of white, we're seeing that area in between the bone. We put the needle right there and then put the steroid medication deposited directly there. This is what it looks like on the side view. And it, it kind of shows up almost like a football type shape when you look at it from the side. If you want something that's a little bit longer uh, acting in terms of relief for that sacroiliac joint arthritis, uh, in a fashion that's very similar to when we talked about the medial branch block and the radiofrequency ablation, there's a nerve specifically here called the lateral branch, which is this nerve. There's a series of them that goes from the nerve roots here in the sacrum and it goes and provides sensation to the sacroiliac joint. So we can go and block them. And then if you get good pain relief, then we can actually go and burn off or ablate these nerves. So very similar concept to what we talked about before. This is uh, just a demonstration of that from the side view. Um, and then these are those needles as well as the inside filament thing. All right, one other injection that I'll talk about before talking about surgical procedures that's oftentimes talked about in like um, news articles, stuff like that, would be something called platelet-rich plasma. In brief, it's when we draw blood, we can actually spin it down where we isolate plasma, which is like the part of the blood that's not the red blood cells. Um, and then by spinning it, we actually concentrate the platelets. Platelets are one type of blood cell that have a lot of signaling molecules that theoretically can help rebuild some of the tissue. So this is like a newer technology that's being investigated, but it's actually used quite frequently, both in private practice and also in some academic centers like UCSF. Um, it's safer because you're not injecting like a foreign substance, it's like your own blood that's spun down. And then you can inject it in a variety of locations. The big caveat with this is that since it's new, a lot of the data is not super conclusive. We don't know exactly like, does it cause, you know, this amount of relief? I think those things are to be determined in the next few years. But we draw it from the IV, we spin it down. Uh, this is essentially what we're trying to get at the plasma and then see the platelets there. And then in the back specifically, there's two main areas that it can be injected. Uh, one area which actually has a little bit more research 
that looks at the results are intradiscal. So basically we inject it in the disc in between the bones of the back. And the thought is if there's a crack in the disc, we can actually utilize this to try to repair that. So it gets you longer term relief in a controlled reaction where it helps release some of those signaling molecules to help rebuild some of the tissue. Another area is like along the sacred iliac joint area, um, but that has a little bit less uh, information in terms of research. This is how we do it. We actually access the disc from the side. We go right in there with this needle under x-ray guidance and then deposit uh, the PRP in there. Alrighty, our last section that we'll talk about are advanced slash surgical procedures. These we'll just talk about pretty briefly. I know there's a couple lectures coming up that will touch on this as well. Um, but some of these are actually becoming more widely known in the public. So one common thing that's used for back pain is something called a spinal cord simulator. Uh, it looks like this. It's very similar to a pacemaker. This part is the battery, and then it connects to two wires usually. Uh, this other stuff is just an anchor to like uh, keep the wire in place. So this is a surgical procedure where we start with like a test where we put the wires in and then we connect it to an external battery. And then we essentially do programming where it sends signals up your spinal cord, which are either like gentle, non-painful signals that can block pain signals. Or nowadays the technology has gotten really advanced where we send like no signals, there's like sub threshold, meaning that you can't really perceive any sensation, but nonetheless, it still blocks the pain signals. Uh, the science behind this is rooted in what we call gate theory, which in essence means that when two uh, inputs in the nervous system come at the same time, one is like a painful input, which are what we call nociceptive inputs, and like a non-painful input, like when you rub the arm or when you have like a tapping sensation, they usually go to the same area along the spinal cord. And then the spinal cord will preferentially listen to the non-painful signal. So what you're doing is you're jamming essentially the transmission by putting a lot of non-painful signals. So you jam up and block all the pain signals. So we use that spinal cord stimulator, that electrical device to create signals and thereby like manually using electricity block the pain signals. So it's very fascinating. It can be used actually in, in multiple different applications. Uh, one that comes to mind readily because it's like related to electricity and nerve conduction is actually nerve pain that we talked about earlier. So when you get that weird like shooting pain down the leg, which we call radicular pain, this can be quite useful for that um, by blocking you know, thereby jamming some of the signals by using non-painful signals through that electrical system. Uh, in other, like, newer technology variants of the spinal cord stimulator, they can also address axial pain. So even pain that's more like arthritis-related can be treated theoretically with this. So there's a lot more um, applications for this device, and it's actually becoming more and more common and it's very easy, relatively, you know, as a surgery to get. Um, it's very similar technique as placing like a, a pacemaker in the heart, though arguably a little bit safer because you're not in the heart itself, but you're along the back. Related to that and kind of a spinoff of that is something called the peripheral nerve stimulator. So we can put this stimulator instead of in the epidural space, which I should have mentioned, the spinal cord stimulator 
Uh, the wires, by the way, go right in the epidural space because, again, that's a safe area to access that's really close to the nerves. So instead of, though, injecting medicine, we're putting this wire there and the wire stays permanently. So it sits right on the spinal cord back part, and then it helps to send these signal uh, electrical impulses. So one variation of that is this peripheral nerve stimulator, which is a very similar concept, still gate theory where we're blocking or jamming up the pain signals. But instead of putting it along the spinal cord itself in the epidural space, we're actually placing this right next to a big nerve, like a peripheral nerve in the arm or the leg, and then directly causing that tapping non-painful signal to block the pain signal. This is just one example of one I used to use more in like private practice, uh, but there's actually many different companies that make this uh, and it's like a very similar concept, though a different application as the spinal cord stimulator. For back pain specifically, there's a lot written about uh, stimulating the tiny nerves in the back that go to the muscles. So you put it essentially along here where this little wire or this needle is indicating. And then you stimulate these deep nerves here and you can actually block some of the facet arthritis type of pain. There's some other like more invasive type of procedures that are surgical that can help with other parts of back pain. Uh, one unique scenario is when you have a compression fracture where essentially, you know, the typical scenario is when you have brittle bones, you have osteoporosis, and for some reason or another, whether it's from a fall or just, you know, spontaneous when you're walking around, um, the spine, the vertebrae can actually get compressed like a pancake and flattened down like this. Um, so that can obviously cause quite a lot of pain, uh, usually like inflammation pain and also can misalign the spine in a way that it causes even more pain. Uh, so one thing that can be done is something called kyphoplasty, where essentially you go through the bone in the back to enter this deeper part of the vertebrae, uh, which is called the vertebral body. And then you can actually use a balloon to inflate and kind of jack up the bone. So it's not smushed like a pancake, but instead more of that box type shape. And then afterwards inject some cement. This is what the balloon looks like. It goes through a little port in the, that you, like we specifically put in that deeper part of the spine. So we inflate this balloon. So it creates a cavity that you can now fill in with bone cement. So that cement is similar to like when you imagine, you know, cement being uh, laid out on a sidewalk to patch like a hole there or like some break in the sidewalk. Uh, in a similar fashion, we're like reinforcing the physical structure of the vertebrae. Uh, lastly, there's a newer procedure called a mild procedure, which stands for minimally invasive lumbar decompression. And this is also for a very specific condition where uh, you get narrowing along the nerves of the back. This is called spinal stenosis. Uh, because of some of the tissue, the ligaments get overgrown. So this pink ligament that's right here, kind of in like a V shape, is called the ligamentum flavum. And sometimes it can get very thick, like as we age, more movement of the back, it just is a product of, you know, time, where it can get enlarged and then thereby smush some of the contents here, which are important things like the spinal cord itself, some of the nerve roots. And then when nerves get pinched, they react with inflammation, causing that shooting, tingling pain going down the leg. So one newer technique that people have developed is you can go in here with a little port and a little um, grasper type tool where you can actually shave off some of this really thick ligament 
and thereby physically decompress this area and make it smaller to allow more room for the nerves to be in that spinal canal, that internal part where the nerves live. And then there's less smushing and thereby less inflammation of the area. Um, so it kind of frees up and reduces that. So yeah, there's a lot of stuff that is in the pipeline. I think every year there's more and more development as well, you know, kind of following society and the improvement of technology overall with each year. There's more and more fascinating things that come out in terms of treatments for back pain. Uh, sometimes there are like variations of these like different procedures that we talked about. Sometimes they're all new procedures. So I think it's a very exciting time for chronic pain management. And I think it's only going to get better and better as the time passes. All right. So today we talked about these four categories. So non-opioid medications. We talked about opioids and then uh, touched briefly on the CDC updated guidelines. We talked about injections for back pain specifically like those procedures targeting both that shooting radicular type of pain, but also that axial pain that stays in the middle of the back, more related to arthritis. And then finally, we talked about uh, advanced or surgical procedures, these small surgeries that are new developments that can help through different methods, whether it's like uh, implanting a device or decompressing some of the tissue that's smushing on various parts of the back. Thank you so much for your attention and uh, for allowing me to give this talk. I really appreciate it. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.